Paul Delaney is our guest. He's a space expert and a professor of physics and astronomy at York University. Paul, I love you walking us through these space stories. This one is an interesting one. Uh, apparently, one of Elon Musk's uh, rockets is headed for a collision course with the moon. Can you give us some background on uh, the story of this rocket, how it kind of went off course? Was this purposeful? And when's it going to hit? <laughs> sure thing, Kelly. Uh, it, the story for this one starts all the way back in February of 2015 when the Falcon 9 launched a uh, satellite out to the Lagrange Point L1 uh, for the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric agency, I think, the other A is. At any rate, the second stage of the Falcon 9 was the one that did the uh, the final push for this satellite. And as a consequence, it basically ran out of fuel. It, it delivered the satellite to where it should have, but its fuel reserve at that point was too low to turn the rocket around, this is the second stage, and bring it back for a re-entry and you know, uh, destruction in the Earth's atmosphere. So they had no choice. It basically was left in this Earth-Moon orbit, what they call cis-lunar space. And seven years later, lo and behold, the Moon has done its thing, and it's going to drag this spent rocket stage into a collision on lunar far side March 4. So it's not an Earth collision. It is a Moon collision. But it is a piece of space junk and shows you what can happen when you uh, don't clean up after yourself. We know that the gravitational... Uh, um uh, forces aren't as strong on the moon. So is is it going to be a softer landing than it would be on Earth? Uh, it will be a softer landing, but nonetheless, it's still going to impact at about two and a half kilometers a second. So nothing is going to survive. Uh, this will be an impact that will create a crater <clears throat> on lunar far side. And that actually gives us an opportunity to do a little bit of science. We know what the mass of this rocket is. We know what the speed of impact is going to be. When we compare that to the create the crater it will create, we'll be able to do a little bit of geology. What is the structure of the, uh, the, the strength of the lunar material that we plow into? So we, we, there's a silver lining, I guess, is what I'm saying to this. That's interesting. So do you think we'll see another, well, I know that the goal is to get to Mars again, but will they be going um, specifically to study, uh, you know, what, this, what rocks are turned up in this collision? Well, um, when you look across the surface of the Earth, there is a huge variety of differing rocks on differing continents, beneath the ocean uh, floor and so on. Uh, to think that we understand all of lunar geology just because we've gone to the moon six times with, with Apollo missions, you know, there is still lots to be learned. And these differing structures, the differing strengths, the differing materials tell us, give us more insight into the lunar formation process. So this is just uh, an accidental, if you will, serendipitous way for us to gain a little more insight. Whenever we go to uh, differing objects, the moon, Mars, and so on, looking at the rocks gives us the story of the planet's history and the planet's formation. And the more you can do that, the greater the accuracy you have of that story. Speaking of stories, Don't Look Up, it's a big uh, film on Netflix, and it's about, uh, I think it's an asteroid coming into Earth. It's a collision course uh, with Earth, and what are they going to do about it? Uh, I won't spoil it, but uh, it's <laughs> discovered by a student coming in uh, that, that you know, is watching um, the comet, watching space, and, and sees something and starts to report, hey, uh, we've got something here. Apparently, in real life, a student kind of saw something that, is basically a radio signal from space repeating every 18 minutes and 18 seconds. Is this life trying to contact us? What's happening? 
Uh, yeah, it's an interesting story, this one. As you say, it's a group of undergraduates and graduate students who are working on the uh, Murchison Widefield Array in Western Australia. It's a radio telescope that scans the sky at low frequencies, and they picked up a transient. Uh, a transient is basically a signal that repeats but we don't necessarily know all about it. So the signal goes on and off. And as you indicated, back in 2018, for three or four months, this signal repeated every 18 minutes, so about three times an hour. What, what it is, we're not sure. Uh, we've got lots of transient signals out there. They tend to be much faster, like tens of times per second. They tend to be uh, at much higher frequencies. But this is low frequency, but it's very, very bright. In fact, it outshone all other radio signals uh, when they were detecting it. But fortunately, it only stayed on for about a minute, and then it went silent for 18, and then it came on for a minute what it is, we really don't know. We speculate that it's a magnetar. That's basically a neutron star. That's a stellar remnant, a star that has completed its life, has shrunk down, is only a few tens of kilometers in diameter, but has a very powerful magnetic field. And it's that powerful magnetic field that is basically shooting radiation towards us every 18 minutes. That's the speculation. The thing is turned off, so we can't... We can't verify that at this point in time. So the search is on for more information about these types of objects. Wow. That's a fascinating uh, story. And, and it just piques your interest because I think there are a lot of people that are, you know, you look at how vast the, the universe is and you think, well, there's got to be. Uh, something trying to contact us. But it could just be an exotic dead star, I hear. That's right. Unfortunately, I don't think this one is going to be uh, E.T. trying to call okay. us. I think this one is much more likely to be a low-frequency magnetar, as I say, the stellar remnant. But the, the good news here is, A, it was undergraduate students who were part of the discovery. So imagine if you were at university working with a professor and all of a sudden you trip over this signal in your data. I mean, it, you know, that, those folks would be on a high for the rest of their life, literally. Should you automatically get your degree? <laughs> <laughs> that's Here you go. Find it doesn't necessarily mean you understand it. No, you've got to get the degree still. But okay. you know, it's it's uh, it shows what can happen when you engage in research. And you know, the, the earlier you engage in research at the university, the more exciting it becomes as time goes by. Speaking of exciting, the Webb Telescope is uh, ready to go. It's in position, and it should be ready soon to unravel the mysteries of the universe, dating far, far, far back in time to when the universe was born. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, is basically Hubble 2.0, right? It, it's the success of the Hubble. Uh, you know, we don't like to say that it's sort of you know, Hubble uh, up on steroids because it's looking at a different part of the sky or a different part of the spectrum. Hubble uses the same sort of light that your eye uses to observe the universe. James Webb is using sort of heat, infrared radiation. So in that sense, it's a successor to Hubble rather than Hubble 2.0. Uh, we've got about another five months of, of testing before we're actually able to um, uh, transmit our first images. It has arrived at the Lagrange point, which is really good, and all of the unfurling of the telescope has happened. That's great. But there are 18 mirrors that now have to be aligned to you know, literally a fraction of a wavelength of light to allow us to be able to see clearly. If you think of a pair of binoculars, first thing you do when you put the binoculars to your eye is you focus the lenses so that you can see distant objects nice and clearly. We've got to do that 
for 18 different mirrors on James Webb, and then we've got to fire up all of the instruments and calibrate them. So it's a, it's a five-month process. Yeah. It's important, but you know, it's still a long ways to go before we can actually get that first image. I don't know if anybody felt like I did, but I felt like when you talked about that, um, getting the lens, the lens right and getting it focused correctly, it's sort of like sitting in one of those, um, optometrist chairs. Is, do you like this or this? One or two? And I'm like, I don't know. They look the same. Two, one, one, two. Sums it up, like, sums uh, it up very, very well. Uh, that's for sure. But uh, as I say, it, it's a painstaking process that has to happen now. But at least we've got a telescope in the right place and ready to actually perform this. And you know, people's fingernails are beginning to regrow after the first month. So this, this is great. Paul, it's exciting. It's like uh, the Super Bowl for uh, space nerds. I appreciate yes. you uh, <laughs> joining us as always with your time. Uh, wealth of knowledge and expertise and a friend of the show. It's good to have you back. My pleasure, Kelly. We'll speak again, I'm sure. Cheers. Paul Delaney is our space expert friend here at 640 Toronto.